for God's kids. I want to just bring us back. This time of season, many people graduate from kindergarten, from junior high, high school, college, grad school. Earlier I was looking around and I, I know several who are graduating, but they're either on trips, one is graduating today. Is there anyone present today that is graduating from kindergarten, from junior high, high school, college, grad school? Anyone? No? I want to go ahead and pray, though, during this time for, for those who aren't here. We got someone coming? Let's go ahead and pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we recognize so much transitions in our lives, and we think of, of these children and young adults, Lord, who are graduating from various aspects of school, Lord, whether it's kindergarten, whether it's junior high, high school, college, grad school. And Father, we ask, Lord, that you be with them even some graduating today. Father, we pray that you would encourage them, that you would give them faith, Lord, that they would rest in you, knowing, Father, that you're their strength. Father, be with them. Encourage them. Father, as we turn now toward the sermon and Lord, in your word, I want to pray first for Sarah Pagan, Lillian Galarza's mom, who had surgery this week. We understand, Father, that she's stable. Yeah, we recognize, Lord, that because of her age and, and just the type of procedure done, Lord, that is hard. We pray for her, Lord, that you would give her strength and grace for this period. We pray for Lillian and for her family, that they might be encouraged, Lord, in you. And pray all this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's hard to believe that back in January, second week in January, we began this series on the book of Ephesians. I don't think we've ever done a series maybe this long from a, on a book or the Bible. It's been exciting. It's been exciting for Pastor Eric and I to listen to you and your response. We've had people say, I thought I knew the book of Ephesians until we went through this series. We've had others come up to us and say, now I understand the gospel in a totally new way. I, I see it more clearly now. I understand more what the gospel is. And so today we'll be wrapping up the epistle to Ephesians. And I've entitled today's sermon, Ephesians, A Life-Changing Letter. Because that's what it really is. It's a life-changing letter. Billy Graham was flying on a plane, and just ahead of him was a drunken passenger who was causing a big disturbance for the staff and for other uh, people on the flight. He was swearing and he was being rude and uh, trying to calm him down. One of the attendants went to this man and said, Sir, we've got uh, Billy Graham just a few rows behind you, and uh, we'd, we'd appreciate it if you would you know, quieten down. Immediately when he heard Billy Graham's name, he said, Billy Graham, let me speak to him. I want to tell him something. 
He got up, and he staggered back, running into people, and he got to Billy, and he said, shake my hand. Your ministry has such, has such a tremendous effect on my life. Well, I know that Pastor Eric and I don't want that to be the effect of our ministry on your life. And that's not what Paul wanted. Paul, in the epistle to Ephesians, was telling the Christians there uh, to walk the talk, to live consistently, to live out what they claimed. Ephesians summarizes what it means to be a Christian. It looks at the dynamics of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and deals with God's overall plan and pattern of the church. It draws out implications of what it means to live as a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, what motivated Paul to write this epistle, this letter, to the Ephesians. If we look back at the culture at that time, I think there are three things that may have had an impact. One, Ephesus was known for its paganism. The temple of the Greek goddess Artemis stood there and, and it had tremendous sway over the people and the culture. Magic was, was prevalent. Astrology was there. And believers faced, it, faced tremendous temptation. And spiritual warfare was strong. And they needed to know that the power they had in Christ Jesus was far superior to the power of Artemis. Second thing, if we think back to the culture, there was that animosity between the Jewish people and Gentiles. And Paul knew that they needed to be unified if the church was to be effective. And third, the Gentiles needed to be encouraged to stop living their immoral lives and their lifestyle before Christ. They need to understand who they were in Christ. Ephesians 4.17 says, You must no longer walk as Gentiles walk. Peter O'Brien, a scholar and academic, says that the main purpose of Paul writing Ephesians was identity formation. Identity formation, who we are. He wanted the Ephesians to know who they were in Christ Jesus. Well, as we've already discussed over these last few weeks and months, Ephesians divide, divides very easily into two parts. First three chapters, we find doctrine, what we believe. Last three chapters, four, five, and six, we find out how we should live. The first part of the book emphasizes God's sovereignty. We see over and over God's purpose, will, counsel, plan. The last half of the book looks at our responsibility, man's uh, duty. The first book, the first half of the book looks at our relationship with God. The last half looks at our relationship with other people. Paul in Ephesians is saying, that the power of God exercised in raising Christ from the dead and setting him in superior position over the universe is at work in you and me. And today, as we think about reviewing the book of Ephesians, if you, if you would, I want you to think of three hooks 
I want you to hook three words on these. First is wealth. Wealth. We see in the first few chapters the incredible riches that we have in Christ Jesus. Wealth. Second word is walk. Walk. It's the manner in which we live. And third word to hang on that hook is warfare. We all know that we face that spiritual warfare. We've been hearing from, from Nathan Strand the last few weeks talking about that. Wealth, walk, and warfare. And we see first the wealth of the believer in, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and, and, and far more, but it, it starts off as just so powerful. And I won't read it all, it's already been read, but blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It goes on and talks about our redemption and forgiveness of sin. And and we just see the riches that we have in Christ. And as Pastor Eric read earlier, the, the key verse verses for this whole book are found in verses 9 and 10, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We see first here a plan for redemption. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from eternity past had a plan, a plan to redeem a people, their people. The plan, of course, included uniting the Jewish people along with the Gentiles. Verses 11 and 12 continue on with that plan of God using words, again, purpose and counsel and will, saying, in him we have an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, over and over we see God's plan, God's purpose, God's will, God's counsel. We see the Father at work as we look at the Trinity. He chose us before the creation of the world. He predestined us, adopted us as sons in Christ Jesus. We see in this passage that Jesus Christ as part of the Trinity, redeemed us. Verse 7 and 8 says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. And thirdly, we see the work of the Spirit. Verses 13 and 14 where it says that when we believed in Christ, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So we see the work of the Trinity in God's plan. And after going through this, Paul then prays for the Ephesians. And in his prayer in chapter 1, we see the incredible power of God. Paul wants the Ephesians to know the hope which God has called them, the riches 
of his inheritance, the immeasurable greatness of his power. And he stresses that Christ is far above all rule and all authority and all power and dominion. And he's put all things under his feet. And after discussing God's plan and praying for the saints, in chapter 2, Paul looks and writes about the believer's position in Christ. And first, he looks at the believer's position personally. Ephesians 2 is a passage that most of us know pretty well. We see the Gentile, we see our position in, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, 4, and 5 there. It says, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. We see that desperate condition that we have without Christ. There's that death and condemnation, the bondage to evil. And it goes on, it says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All that describes who we were before Christ. Then we see later on our position in Christ once we trusted him. We were dead in sins, it said, but, in verse 5, but, but God made us alive in Christ. God made us alive in Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places. And then it looks at our future. It says you're saved and you're saved by grace and not of works. Paul makes it very clear that we're not saved by doing good things. It's by grace, through faith, in the work of Jesus Christ. But he says we're saved for reason, to do good works. To do good works. Paul then moves to show the, the Ephesian uh, believers their former position corporately. Remember, most of them were Gentiles. He says in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he says that we were separated from Christ. We were alienated from Israel. We were strangers. And it goes on, having no hope without God. This is who we were before Christ. Then he goes on, he says, but corporately, as a body, Presently, we're one man, the Jew and the Gentile. We've become one. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the sinners, rather with the saints and the members of the household of God. In him, you're being built up together into a dwelling place for God. And then he continues on, he talks about that mystery that's revealed that Jesus Christ coming to earth to die on the cross for our sins, they made the Jew and the Gentile into one person, one. Today in America, if we look around, what we watch the news or just in our own lives, we feel separated at times. We have those recently with this Occupy um, Wall Street thing, we've had the, the 99 percenters who were saying that they were the average people and that there's 1% that have all the wealth. 
which, which isn't true. But you see that division there between those who have a lot and those who don't. We see it between liberals and conservatives. We see it sometimes between races. I think we, if we're honest in our own lives, there have been various times in our lives where we felt separated. Separated from those around us. In this passage, Paul is saying to the Gentiles, you're no, no longer separated. You're no, no longer alienated. We're one. We're one in Christ Jesus. And Paul then prays for the Ephesians, asking that they might be strengthened through his spirit. A prayer that, that um, Paul had prayed that would make them know the incredible power uh, of God. He wants them to know their position individually and corporately in Christ. There's a story of a novice pilot. I don't know how true it is. I was flying over London when a flight control asked him uh, for, for his position. And he says, I'm five foot eight and I'm sitting in the cockpit. Well, I'm Ralph Edmonds, and I live at 1705 North Rockwell, but I'm seated in the heavens for Jesus Christ. And he tells us today, if we know Jesus Christ, if he's our Lord and Savior, we're seated in heaven with him. In Christ, every Christian is seated. A key phase throughout Ephesians is in Christ or in him. We see it some 34, 35 times, in Christ, in Christ, in Him, we have all these things. See, at the heart of this book of Ephesians is a message that we as believers possess a new identity because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of us have come to Christ maybe sometimes after a life of immorality. And it's easy, if we're not in God's Word, to forget that that's who we were. We were that, but we now in Christ are new creatures. Maybe we were thieves or we were robbers or whatever, but in Christ we're new creation. And Paul here wants us to know this identity and that in order to live in a manner that pleases God. Again, Paul in, in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, You were dead and you trespassed in sin, but God made us alive in Christ. Paul painted that picture that was very dreary before our life in Christ. And yet, over and over throughout this book, we see just a list after list, again, 34, 35 times that he says, various things. Now, I want to just kind of go through a, a few things of who we are in Christ. And I want you to listen. And I want you to see if you have grasped who you are. In Christ, if we have trusted Christ, if in, in Christ we are saved. We're alive in Christ. We're saints. We're new creation in Christ. We're brought near to God. 
Can you remember when you seemed like you were so far from God? In Christ, we're brought nearer. We're given access to God. In Him, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're chosen. We're called. We're predestined. We're adopted. We're redeemed, forgiven, and sanctified. We're part of the body of Christ. We're members of the household of God. Again, possessors of the Spirit of God. All these riches are not just literary exaggeration. That's who we are. And as we go through life, sometimes we forget who we are. We forget that we're seated in Christ with heaven. We forget that we have the power within us that raised Jesus Christ from the dead to walk with him. Is in Christ that we have all these spiritual blessings. We're rich. We're wealthy. There was this woman back in the early 1900s that was known as America's greatest miser. And yet when she died in 1916, Hetty Green left an estate of over $100 million. Over $100 million. She ate her, co- her oatmeal cold because it cost money to heat it. Her son's leg was amputated because she kept waiting, looking for a free clinic. She even increased her, her death coming sooner because she had a stroke in the midst of arguing about the value of skim milk. She was foolish, so foolish that she caused her own death She had limitless wealth at her disposal, and yet she lived like a pauper. And sometimes Hetty Green's life illustrates our lives. We have all the riches, all the riches in Christ to live for him and walk with him, and yet we don't use them. We don't apply them. Are you and am I using the power, the gift, the grace that God has given us in Christ? Well, after establishing that first hook, wealth, the riches that we have in Christ, Paul moves in chapters 4, 5, and 6 to talk about our walk with Christ our duty, our responsibilities. Five times the Ephesians are told to walk in a certain manner because of their new identity. 4.1 says, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. First, we see as believers we're called to walk in unity. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 2 or 3 there, Paul begins and says, he appeals for unity with the believers as he urges them to, um, to walk. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. He's basically saying, don't cause division. If you have a problem with someone, deal with it. You know, I know, we send it in our own lives when we don't deal with 
with conflict. It becomes like poison. As we talk and interact with others, that poison spreads to others. And so Paul encourages the Ephesian believers, he encourages us to walk in unity, to walk in unity with fellow brothers and sisters. And remember, again, the Jewish people, there was such animosity between the Jew and the Gentile. And God calls them to walk in unity. And he gives the basis for this unity in verses 5 and 6 because we're part of one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope and one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and Father over all. Our unity is in Christ. Our unity is in that Father in heaven that we have. Paul then instructs the Ephesians to no longer live as Gentiles. Of course, they struggled with that pattern of life beforehand. And in this passage, uh, he talks about walking in purity. And it actually covers chapter 4, 17 through, almost through 5, 17. Again, he says, don't walk as Gentiles. And this is the passage where he says, put off the old and put on the new. And, and, he, and he tells us to stop lying. Stop lying and start telling the truth. And he says, stop losing your temper. And make sure that your anger is righteous and justified. He says, stop stealing. And start working and be benevolent and give to others. He says, next, stop corrupt, vile talk, speech. And be an encourager. Finally, he says in this passage, stop being bitter. Stop being bitter. And start forgiving. But those five things are huge. False teachers then, and false teachers now, and we've all heard them, will say to you, you can be a Christian and you can live in a habitual, deliberate, sinful lifestyle. But Paul says that these are empty words. Verse 5 and 6 of chapter 5, Paul says, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous or idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul here warns the Ephesians. He warns us. Don't believe these lies. Don't believe these empty words. Because as believers, we're called to put off the old and put on the new. Don't believe somebody when they say that you can live like the devil, so to speak, and think that you're a believer. Again, we're not talking about, about falling in sin. I'm talking about deliberate patterns of life. 
And Paul warns them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 and 10, Paul again says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither do the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the men who practice homosexuality, the thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the swindlers, and on down the line. But he also says in that passage, some of you were these people. Some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were thieves. Some of you were robbers. Some of you were down the line. He says, but, but you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you're a new creature. So Paul warns us, walk first in unity, but second, walk in purity. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, therefore, be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice of God. He's again, he's continuing this process of walking in purity. He says we're to imitate God. And first we see there, we walk in love because God is love. We were children of disobedience, but now we're children of God and we ought to walk in love. Secondly, we're to walk as children of light, children of the light, because God is light. Second Corinthians six fourteen says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What fellowship does light have with darkness? And thirdly, we're exhorted to walk wisely because God is truth. Ephesians 5.15 says, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are, are full of evil. Paul reminds us here, life is short. We don't know when our time comes to go home. And he reminds us that we live in a world that's filled with evil. And he says here to make, to look carefully, and, he, and it means to look around you. It carries the idea of precision and, and accuracy. We're not going to walk with God without carefully looking at what God's Word says. First John 1, 5 through 7 says, that if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not tell the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another. Well, we're to walk in unity. We're to walk in purity and all those things that go along with walking like God. Finally, we're to walk in harmony. If you remember, this passage begins in five, the last part of chapter five, and goes into chapter six, first nine verses. And the principle of headship comes up here, and it, and it talks about how headship and leadership in the home brings harmony in the home. 
we see in this passage, we saw where we're to submit to one another. And it talks about being not controlled by wine, but being controlled by the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit, it affects three different relationships. The marriage relationship, love and submission. The wife is to honor and to respect her husband. And the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. So the husband is to love sacrificially. The family, the parents, and the children, children are told to be obedient, submitting to their father and mother and honoring them. And the parents are told to instruct the children. The third relationship we see Looking at Ephesians, and that time was, Ephesus rather, was the master-slave. Of course, today we apply that to work. Back then, of course, the slaves lived in the household with them. But the master-slave relationship and the employer-employee relationship should be one of integrity, we found out. Integrity and fairness. Wamey Carmichael was a woman who didn't fit the mold. In the early years of her missionary experience, she seemed to kind of just flounder. She went first to Japan, then to China, other places, and then finally she ended up in England, where she faced a lot of pressure to remain at home. God finally sent her to India. She spent the rest of her life in India, where she died and was buried. I think most of us Many of us will know that Amy Carmichael worked in India, and her, her, her goal in, in life was, was to reach people for Christ, but she reached out to, to small girls, to girls who were involved in temple prostitution. And she was, she's so well known for that. Um, Dr. Harold Sala said that if he had to use three words to describe um, Amy, Car- Amy Carmichael, he would use obedience and loyalty and tenderness. From the very beginning, Amy had a fierce and unswerving uh, obedience to the Word of God and what she felt like God's will was for her life. And sometimes the other missionaries didn't like it. As as a matter of fact, in her early years in India, there was this uh, Get Amy Carmichael Out of India movement by the other missionaries and by the Christians there. She was a thorn in their, in their side, so to speak, because she wanted to wear the Indian dress and she wanted to be a servant. She refused, however, though, to speak of her critics, and there were many. She refused to, to speak against them, and she wouldn't allow any of her co-workers to speak against them either. She ins- insisted on absolute complete loyalty to her brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter how much criticism uh, that they did, and no matter how much it seemed like they were enemies of the work that she was doing. Amy wrote in her book, I think it was Roots, it is not at all that ours is the only way of living, but it's the way that we feel like that God has called us to live. 
And tenderness was mentioned as a, as a trait of her. This tenderness um, marked Amy's life, but it wasn't the kind of tenderness that we might think about where we see this, this weakness. Hers was more this iron fist with a velvet glove on it. She could be tough if you read any of her biographies. She would go through crowds of people that were angry and they were yelling and screaming at her. And she'd go in and she'd rescue these little girls from prostitution. And then, and then she could sit and cry with them because of all the hurt and pain. She was tender. Amy Carmichael died, as I said, in India at the age of 84. Her simple grave simply had the Indian word for mother. In her commitment to her brothers and sisters in Christ, in the midst of criticism, we see her walk in unity. We see her walk in wisdom. We see her walk in love, in harmony, purity, of course. God calls you and me to walk in unity, to walk in purity, and to walk in harmony. Well, finally, in chapter 6, Paul turns to warfare, which is the most recent session we've gone through as Nathan has been preaching. Beginning in chapter 4, though, verse 1, Paul had encouraged the Ephesians to live a life that was worthy of their calling. And the Ephesians had been exhorted to live in this distinctive manner. He concludes his letter. He says we must be strong in the Lord in order to fight our spiritual enemies. He talks about our chief adversary, Satan, the devil, along with his followers, and how they attack us uh, in any way that they can. Ephesians 6.12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Isn't it so easy for us as we live here on earth to see people as our enemy? And yet God's word is very clear that it's not our fellow believer or it's not our neighbor that's the enemy. It's Satan. And we can't overcome him on our own. When we have the armor of God, we can resist Satan's attempts to deceive us. Remember 1 John 4, 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In James 4, 7, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, the Ephesians, again, were, they were just totally dominated by uh, idolatry. Again, if Ephesus had all this uh, magic and astrology and mystery religions there in the midst of them. And the believers come out of that. Now, I don't know about you, but I know when I came to Christ, 
I've been raised in a family that believes certain things, just like you were raised in a family who believes certain things. And many of the things I was taught were true. But there are also many things that I was taught in my home that were not true. I remember coming to Christ. I remember having to look at what God's Word says versus what some of the beliefs that my family had as non-believers. We need to remember that as believers, we have a new family. We're in Christ. He's our hope in the midst of life. In this closing portion, Paul identifies five defensive weapons. And we're all familiar with them. The belt of truth. Truth. The nature of truth is that it resists lying and false doctrine. Satan's a liar, again. But if we know the Word of God, if we know, if we have on the belt plate of truth and know God's Word, we won't be deceived. How many of us have heard people say things that are totally opposite of what God's Word says? If we know God's Word, we won't be deceived. We'll put on that belt plate, of that belt, rather, of truth. And the second thing was a breastplate of righteousness. And yes, our righteousness is in Jesus Christ, but this is talking about a consistent walk with God. Satan is going to accuse us. You can be sure he will accuse us. But if we're walking with God, he won't have the opportunity to attack us. We won't believe him. Third is the gospel of peace. It resists slander and selfishness. Satan, again, is a divider and a destroyer. When we walk in peace with God and others, the door isn't open for Satan. The shield of faith, Satan is a source of unbelief and doubt. And one of his favorite questions, I believe, is, has God indeed said that? Going back to Genesis he wants us to doubt. And finally, is the helmet of salvation. The believer who is walking with God, looking to the future, to his return, we're going to be more likely to resist Satan as we trust him. Of course, in this passage also are two offensive weapons, very important weapons. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We have to know it. And prayer. As Nathan said so very well last week, uh, they will pray uh, in all ways for all people at all times. But Satan is our enemy. He wants to destroy us. Just as he wanted to destroy the Ephesians. We face that spiritual battle. He wants to cause you and me to have conflict. He wants to separate brother and sister in Christ. He wants disunity in the church here at Good News Bible Church. He will seek to deceive you so we don't walk with the Lord. He'll cause us to think that living a Christian life is not that important. How many times have we heard people who have walked with the Lord for a while, they believe the lie of Satan? He'll lie to us. 
to tell us it's not important to study God's Word this morning or to pray this morning. It causes us to get weak. And all this causes disharmony. When in spiritual battle, Paul emphasizes so much importance of prayer. Again, pray in every way, on all occasions, at all times, for all people. This book of Ephesians is so powerful. And I want us today, as we close up, I want us to, again, remember those three hooks. First one, wealth. Remember, remember, believer, you are wealthy in Christ. Remember the riches that we have in Jesus Christ. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is our power. We're adopted. We're redeemed. We're forgiven. We have access to God. Wealth. Secondly, walk. We're to walk in unity. We're to walk in purity and harmony. And third, remember the warfare. Third hook, warfare. Remember, you're not fighting each other. It's a spiritual battle going on. And that battle is already won in Christ Jesus. We could even extended that walk to walk in victory. Because in Christ Jesus, we've won that spiritual battle. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we finish up, Lord, we've we look back over the book of Ephesians and Oh, Lord, it's filled with so much truth, so many doctrines, so much that we need to know. Father, help us to remember who we are in Jesus Christ, to know all the riches. Help us, Father, to walk with you. Oh, Lord, Satan wants to divide us. He wants to divide Marriages. He wants to to, to divide uh, the church. Father, help us to walk in unity. Lord, to walk in purity and harmony. Oh, Father, remind us over and over of this battle, Lord, that spiritually that we've already won in Christ. We pray, Father, that you'd help us to walk in victory because we're in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.